Bible-teaching church. There is no scenario where we will ever hedge on what God's Word says. But that doesn't mean it's always That's why you don't need my opinion. You don't need the opinion of the overseers. What you need is God's Word. Always, only, authoritatively, inerrantly, and infallibly. I will endeavor to do my very best, always, to teach it faithfully. So, with that in mind, we'll be turning to Luke chapter 17 as we continue our series. We're working through this Dear Theophilus idea, as Luke has written this entire book, essentially as a letter to his friend Theophilus with the intention of it being read throughout the churches, and the Lord clearly inspired it for us to be read today. Luke's intent was to to give a foundation for the faith of Theophilus in writing that you can know certainty of that. We're going to be in Luke 17. We'll be reading from there. And before we do, let us ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, today as we open your word, you have things for us. Lord, the things that you have for us to see are often difficult for us to hear. Not because they're complicated, but because they are conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples begins back in chapter 14. So whether Luke is actually going through one uh, chronological conversation or he's taking other pieces, remember Luke comes after the fact, he wasn't an eyewitness to these things, he studied, he researched, he went and interviewed people, he talked to those who walked with Jesus, and he put together an orderly account. As he did it, he may not have 
even attempted to put things in chronological order. His intent was to draw together a story of truth, a foundation of truth. But in any case, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke has placed all of these things together. And in chapter 14, we see Jesus dining at a Pharisee's house. And he's having conversations with the Pharisees. He's having conversations with his disciples, those who are already committed to him. And he's having conversations with the crowd that follows and keeps pressing in. Everywhere he goes, he's got people trying to, as we saw last time, press into, force their way into, exert effort to get into the kingdom of God because the good news of the kingdom is appealing. Whether they understood it or not, they wanted it. The crowds kept getting thinned out as they began to understand. So as he works through there, in this conversation, there is an overriding theme of what we value versus what God values. And Jesus is giving this picture of how we need to get our thoughts, our values, our priorities aligned with God's thoughts, values, priorities, His kingdom agenda. And in chapter 15, we see the three very well-known parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the, the lost son, which show to the Pharisees, to the disciples, to the crowd, and to us today, the priorities that God has. God's passion for restoring the lost, to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke shows that in, in uh, chapter 19. You've heard me say it many times. And we'll, eventually, that'll be our memory verse when we get to chapter 19. But, but uh, Jesus says there that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Chapter 15 shows that priority. That will become very important today as we get into this. Chapter 16, <coughs> excuse me. Chapter 16 shifts the direction a little bit as Jesus is talking about using the resources that God gives us to be able to uh, build his kingdom, to take the worldly wealth that we have to gain friends and influence for ourselves that last into eternity. Incidentally, Jesus used his very life to purchase friends for himself, to purchase us. He laid his life down for that very Having come out of that and seeing last week this idea that God uh, gives us grace, but He doesn't give us shortcuts. There is no um, there is no easy road to get to God. The gospel doesn't make it easier; it makes it possible. The law still remains. God's word is eternal and unchanging. But Jesus fulfilled the law. So all of the law that's found in Christ is fulfilled in Christ. Outside of Christ, you're still on your own. That's an impossible task. No one can ever get to God by the keeping of the law. Never could, never can, never will. Jesus, however, brings the grace to fulfill that, to offer it to us, that through Him, the, the law is fulfilled for us. Therefore, when we are united with Christ, when we are in Him, the law is fulfilled in us. He had no sin, so He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, as we come out of that idea that God's Word is eternal, it doesn't change, but the grace of God is given to us in Christ, and the kingdom is moving, we see chapter 17. It's still a continuation of the dialogue 
And yet, now he's turning back to his disciples. Chapter 16 primarily, or the second half of that, primarily came out of his rebuke of the Pharisees. He's talking to his disciples. The Pharisees interrupt and sneer and say, I And so he rebukes them, and his teaching comes out of there. We see the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now he turns back to his disciples. Let's read, starting in chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. Let's take for just a moment. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourself. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, before we get into the rest of this, imagine what that feels like. Uh, we'll see elsewhere. Peter gets uh, kind of tripped up on this whole uh, forgiveness thing. There's my, my brother seven times, and Jesus like, keep going. Uh, maybe 70 times seven times, that's what Jesus said. But the reality is, keep going. There's a, not a limiting so as he's saying this to them, think of how you feel when you have been wronged by someone, and they say, oh, I'm really sorry, and then they do it again. Oh, I'm really sorry, and then they do it again. Oh, I'm really sorry, and then they do it again. That's what Jesus just told them. So notice now what the disciples say. And specifically, not just the disciples, notice it says the apostles. That's important. These aren't the, the hundred or hundreds or however many that are committed to him. These are the twelve. Those who are closest. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, there's no way. We need more faith. He replied, your faith is small as a mustard seed. You can say that the mulberry tree be uprooted and planted in the sea. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, oh, Come along now and sit down to eat. Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat. After that, you may eat. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty.
sense of class, there's a sense of authority and submission. You bow before the Sultan, you recognize who you are. You may not like it, but you recognize it. And if you don't recognize it, they have very quick ways of dealing with it, usually involving a scimitar. And you don't make that mistake again when your head rolls across the floor. We don't understand in our Western culture what this concept of servanthood is like. We think that our bosses should give us a pat on the back every time we do our job. Not just get a paycheck, but we should get a butter cookie with it. get some kind of a treat, some sort of special award for doing what we were hired to do. That this uh, comparison that Jesus makes here has always hit me a little weird. Now, I was raised in a world where uh, I got the eagle on I was raised in a world in a cult. I say that too much. Sorry. The, the reality is I, I was raised to believe that when you have a job, you do the job. That's it. Mom and Dad don't thank you for the job. You do the job. You've got life. You've got shelter. You've got food. That's already more than you deserve. So appreciate it and do your work. That served me very well in school, in sports, and especially in the military. Because I recognized that I didn't have rights. The servant in this little picture that Jesus doesn't have rights. This is a union labor. This is a, a different concept than what we are used to. Jesus is saying, look, you need to remember this role. Everything in God's universe, everything that he has created, functions on principles of authority and submission. Always, everywhere. It never changes, whether you're talking about the physical realm, microbiology, cosmology, uh, spiritual realm, Group dynamics, human relations are always rooted in some form of authority and submission. We can rebel against it, we can reject it, it doesn't matter, it's still reality. You can't get away from it. It's built into us. At the, at the atomic level, atoms have a an authority and submission as the electrons orbit the nucleus. It has to be that way. And when things don't function that way, Chaos and entropy ensues. And decay happens and things break down. That concept of authority and submission underlies everything that Jesus is teaching. We need to remember that. Now, having said those things, let's go back and take a look at this. Our core reality for today is a little longer than normal. I just did not have a good way of wording this to make it clever and catchy, so I apologize for not being clever. But here's the truth. Here's the reality. This is the kernel that, that's at the heart of all of this that runs through it. And we need to grasp this. Those who belong to Christ must reflect both His holiness and His mercy through our relationships. You can see how that ties into our expression of the church's purpose. Every church has the same purpose. It's given to us by God. We don't get to decide it. He helps us. 
we worded at real life that we exist to reflect the reality of Christ through relationship. That is right here in the center of this story. Those who belong to Christ must reflect both His holiness and His mercy through our relationship. I think we'll see this as we go along. He starts. Uh, let's start by, by looking at the whole of chapter 17. It, it comes down to a warning, a command, and a reminder. A warning, a command, and a reminder. Jesus warns us, woe to those who lead others astray. You know, this is a casual statement. Things that are going to cause people to, stum- to stumble, scandalizo, this, this idea that there are things that will cause us to step into sin fall away, to get distracted, to miss the mark, to fall off the path. That's going to happen. Don't you be the cause of it. Woe to those who would lead others astray. In fact, so strong is his admonition here. He says, if you are one of those who leads others into sin, who causes these little ones, he's not talking about children, he's talking about his disciples. It's a, a diminutive uh, way of addressing those who believe. It's actually the same in Matthew, uh, but we hear it as children. And as we see this picture, he's saying, if you were to cause one of these followers, one of these little ones to stumble, you're going to wish for death. It would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the ocean. Now, a millstone, you're talking about a, a giant stone. Think Little House on the Prairie, maybe, you know, where you've got a, a grinding stone in a mill. We don't see that a lot. Today. But this is a giant stone that's actually turned by a donkey. That's how big it is. They get a, a donkey out there moving it so that it can grind the grain. Big, heavy stone. Hang it around your neck get tossed in the ocean, that's going to be better for you than if you cause one of these little ones. God takes our influence on others very seriously. He also gives this command of forgiveness. There's a command to it. It's not a suggestion. He doesn't say, boy, it'd really be nice if you to one another. Let's, let's, let's just be chums. Let's all be tolerant and get along. That's not at all what he's saying. In fact, he's very clear about it. And it's connected to this phrase, so watch yourself. So watch yourselves, in verse 3, connects this warning about causing people to stumble and this uh, rebuking and, and forgiveness thing. So we need to tell people when they're getting off track and we need to restore them and forgive them. This command to forgive is big. God takes mercy very seriously. God takes our influence on others very seriously. He takes mercy very seriously. And we see in this picture of the unworthy servant that we, when we've done all that we have to do, rather than looking for a pat on the back, should have the approach inside of ourselves, in our minds, all I've done is what I'm supposed to do. I am a servant unworthy of extra uh, praise. I don't need my master to say, hey man, this is great, you're my peer, you're my equal, I have special treatment for you, come put your feet up at my table. Not that. 
God takes humility very seriously. God takes our influence on others, specifically we're talking about the communication and modeling of His holiness very seriously, and we see that really drawn out in the Old Testament prophets. We're going to turn to Isaiah. You can start flipping there if you'd like. It's toward the middle of your Bible. You can find the Psalms, then move a little to the right. Okay. Isaiah is usually pretty easy to find. He's a major prophet. That means he talked a lot. He wrote a lot. He's got big books. I cannot lie. So as as you get to Isaiah, we're going to find chapter 5. Isaiah is a prophet to Israel. Now what the prophets do is exactly what we see commanded here. They rebuke those who are off track and they correct and restore. That's their job, to speak as the mouthpiece of God. God speaks through them, but throughout all of the prophets, what we don't see is a lot of inspirational feel-good talk. We don't see throughout the prophets God saying, hey, good job, guys. I want you to be happy. I want you to have your best life. I want you to really be able to prosper. Most of the time what we see is God saying, I gave you everything. You gave me that enough. I gave you my love, my protection, my provision. I offered you prosperity. I gave you life. I gave you truth. I gave you myself. And instead, you chose to turn every one of my gifts into an idol. You chose to make the good things, the beautiful things, horrific, corrupted. You elevated the bad, that which is opposed to me, and made it something that you thought was desirable. In Isaiah chapter 5, this great prophet is addressing this very thing. You're still early in, in his message. And as Isaiah uh, speaks to the people, he's speaking the words of God. And he gives this picture. God uses parables for the prophets as well, just as, as Jesus did. And as we read this together, you're going to see this illustration. God is doing something, and he has an expectation. They don't need the I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What could have been done? What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did you give me that? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. Briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And kindly, he tells us what this parable means. 
vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines of the life. So God plants this vineyard. He creates the nation of Israel. He delights specifically in the tribe of Judah. We've seen this Judah and Benjamin, but this southern kingdom. This is where the line of Jesus will come from. This is the line of David coming through here. And Judah, after Israel is exiled, Judah remains. But Judah doesn't do better, and they end up exiled. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines of the light of it. And he looked for justice. He saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Now, this prophecy that God is laying out here for Israel and Judah specifically is talking about his abandoning them. Now he's always said, I will never abandon you, I'll never forsake you, and he will not ultimately, but for a time that he sets, and he tells them about it in Jeremiah, when Judah goes into exile, in that final exile, he tells them, you're going to be in exile for 70 years, then I'm going to bring you back, because I've got good plans for you. And when I bring you back and you discover these good plans for you, you will seek me with all your heart. But here he's telling them, look, you have gone away from what I have taught you, from what I have demanded. Notice God demands things. My expectation of justice and righteousness, because you are my people, my vineyard, you must produce fruit. Don't be the nation. Israel was always to be a light so God says, look, I'm going to take away your walls. You're going to be overrun. He goes into detail a little bit later here about bringing in the nation. He'll call them in from the end of the earth and they will overrun his people. Let's see what he says next in this morning. After all of that, Woe to you who had house to house and joined field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land, neglecting the poor and The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. It's a, a much smaller amount. Uh, a homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. It will actually yield less grain than it took to plant the field. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks. Stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine. They will be part of life. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of His hand. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and masses, with all their brawlers and revelers. The people will be brought low, and everyone humble. But the eyes of the arrogant, I'm sorry, the eyes of the arrogant will be humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by His justice. Holy God will be proved holy by His righteous acts. Before I get past that, I just want us to hear that. The holiness of God is proven by His judgment. His righteousness.
righteous acts here are his judgment against wickedness. When God steps in and destroys, we see his holiness. Our truth, we have to hear. Verse 17, the sheep will graze as in their own pasture. The lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. those who draw sin along with cords of deceit, pull it along, and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it, is a mockery to us. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so we may know it. People do not take seriously the judgment of God. We see that today. We don't take it seriously, but God does. That is not people of that day heard the message. They knew the warnings. They knew the commands of God. And they said, yeah, bring it. Let's see it. They even used the symbols of God's worship to worship pagan God. Key verse here in verse 20. In fact, this is our memory verse for today. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There's much more to say in these woes, but verse 20 connects this directly with what we see in Luke 17. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Jesus says, if you cause somebody to stumble, stumbling's going to happen. There's going to be lots of temptation. <clears throat> There's going to be lots of false teaching. There's going to be lots of persecution. There's going to be lots of hardship, trials and tribulations of all kinds. Nobody gets out of here clean. But if you're among those who are leading others astray, judgment. Judgment beyond words. So much so that death will sound sweet to you. God takes our influence on others very seriously. As we see what he's saying here, responsible for representing God. The priests represented God to the people, connected the people with the truth, the words of God, the ceremonies of God. They watched over it. But all the people of Israel were to be light to the nations. All the people of Israel were set apart. And God said to them in Leviticus, Be holy, because I am holy. I have set you apart that you might be holy. I have called you out from among them. I have made you separate. This constant call to separation and holiness. Not to shut yourself off from everyone, but to not be influenced by the world. Rather to, rather to stand 
for the truth of God, to hold high the light, to represent Him well, so that when people saw Israel and said, boy, they're weird, look at all their laws, look at how they sacrifice, look at what they're doing, that's not like our gods, they don't live like we do, what's going on there? In the questioning, God would be revealed. And it was crucial for every member of the nation, as we see in Deuteronomy 6, to take the words of God, make it part of your everyday, to the point of binding it on your hand and forehead, which they took very literally. But it was bigger than just a literal strapping on of of phylacteries, or you might see today, posted on the doors. That's a literal keeping of the law. But if we miss the point, we're in trouble. The point is, the Word should be on you, around you, in you. It should fill you. The Word of God should be every part of everything that you do. And if you miss that, you will fail to be the light. Israel missed that. Sure, they kept their little scripture boxes strapped on, put around their doorposts, and all these different things. They kept going to the temple to do these different things. They missed the reality of it. And in so doing, they called evil good and good evil. They traded darkness for light. They were to be shedding light in the nations, and instead, they were promoting darkness. I have to say, we are doing that in the church today. We are doing that with our teaching. We are doing that with our lifestyles. Doing that with our selfishness, our greed, and our lack of forgiveness. We have churches today, even here in our community, who are willing to throw aside the authority of God's word for acceptance by the culture. It does not matter what particular issue you're talking about. The moment we become willing to sacrifice the Word of God for the approval of people or for the understanding of our own minds, we have left God has a warning for all.
Because if we don't, you better believe that the world, the flesh, and the devil will teach them the opposite. We need to take it seriously. God takes it seriously. I'm going to change my order a little bit here so that I can get to this point now. I'm going to have you turn, uh, if you would, to Matthew 18. We'll be back in Matthew 18. causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, clarify, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of God. God takes our influence on others very seriously. Sin matters. In case you thought it didn't. We live in a world that's constantly telling us that it's not sin. There is no sin. The only sin is being intolerant of somebody else's sin. The only sin is anything that would not be consensual. But as long as we're all consenting adults, all bets are off. Do whatever you want. Nothing is really wrong. We even use twisted scripture to back it up. The sexual norms of the Bible were for a different time period. That was for then. We live in a different world. Well, if you're going to say that the Bible condemns homosexuality, then Surely you're going to recognize that the Bible also tells you not to clip your sideburns or to be trim. So it's all the same. It's not the same. That's a gross twisting issue. We need to teach the word faithfully, which requires studying the word diligently. If we don't take it seriously, not only do we suffer, but others suffer. And God will not tolerate that from us. God also takes mercy very seriously. We're talking about mercy. We're talking about love expressing itself through forgiveness and compassion. That is the job. Jesus uh, told us in John 13 that, that the job is... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong passage. So, uh, he told, but he did tell us in John uh, and a couple of other places, and then John writes it again in his letters, that the command is to love one another. We see Paul say it over and over again and describe what it means to love one another. How do we love one another? We do it with action. 
James is very big on action. We'll see in a few moments in another passage. God takes mercy seriously. And he takes humility, our understanding of our roles, of authority and submission, very seriously. This is one of the reasons that we really struggle when we start to throw away pieces of Scripture because the world has told us something. God designed the family to work a certain way because the family is designed to give an illustration of how the Lord interacts with people. We say it clarifies most, most overtly in Ephesians chapter 5, as Paul says, the wife has the role of illustrating the church. The husband has the role of illustrating the love, the servant love of Christ. But it starts with, Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everything comes back to that. But there's an authority and submission that God designed and it doesn't matter whether we live in the 1700s, the 800s, or in 2019. Men and women are different by God's design. Men and women are equal in value, different in role. Equal in value. You say equal in value with me. Equal in value, different in role. It's really important for us to recognize that. God never makes women second-class citizens. Amen? That is an abuse over the generations that has happened, that has caused the wicked backlash. I'm I'm just going to say it. It's a wicked backlash when we see the new feminism of the last 40 years. That is a wicked backlash against the wicked excesses of those who would lord some kind of headship over their wives. That is not biblical. It never was. It doesn't make it better for us to throw away the roles that God gave us. It does not make it better when we say, people messed it up, so therefore God is wrong. I'm going to throw God out. The idea of the nuclear family did not begin with Dr. Spock. It began in Genesis, when God said, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to create them male and female. And I want you to go and repopulate the earth, or populate the earth, and eventually repopulate the earth. That a man and a woman would leave their mother and their father, and they would form a new family unit. And in so doing, they would have offspring as a part of the natural outgrowth of this, all of which is a picture of how God interacts with Israel. And what would come out of that? is also a picture of how God interacts with all of us in the church, which is a picture of how God always deals with his people. He has all the authority. It's important for us to recognize. Let me move forward. Or we're not going to do this. Uh, we're talking about humility. We're speaking of roles, authority, and submission. But the question for us now becomes, how do I do this? Okay, I, I get it. I'm not supposed to lead anybody astray. I'm not supposed to, uh, you know, harbor bitterness and unforgiveness against someone. I, I'm not supposed to forget my place. How do I do this? How do I actually reflect and promote the holiness and the mercy of Christ at the same time? First, we teach God's word faithfully. Teach God's word faithfully. I'm going to go ahead and have you turn to. Uh, 2 Timothy 3. 
still in loop, go to the right. If you have not memorized this particular passage, boy, you should. This is good stuff. Second Timothy 3. servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There is a practical use in teaching God's word faithfully. In James 3.1, James writes that not many of us should presume to be teachers, because those who teach, those who lead, are held to a higher standard. Paul echoes that as he lays out the responsibilities and qualifications for deacons and elders within the church. Jesus reserves the sternest rebukes, the harshest words for those who are supposed to be the leaders of Israel and for those who are his inner circle who know that. They're not educated men. The, the apostles are not educated people, blue-collar workers, who just came to Jesus, followed him, and he taught them the good news of the kingdom. So it wasn't them because they had a degree and should know better. He's on them because they knew him and should know better. What does that mean to us? It means all of us who are in Christ have the, the instruction manual here. We have the Holy Spirit within us. Our responsibility is to lead others in the way of life. Proverbs 10.17 says that whoever accepts discipline leads others in the, ways of, in the way of life, shows the way of life. It's important for us, as those who have learned truth, to teach truth. Which means we have to keep on learning truth more and more. There is never a time when we stop studying the scripture. You will never know enough. I will never, ever know enough. In fact, the more I study, the more I read, the more I learn, the more I realize I have to keep on. The more I realize what I don't know. (laughs) I was talking with my brother not too long ago. We were at a As we were working through these exegetical principles, these Bible study principles, <laughs> I, I, I kind of laughed with sadness. As I think about how I've already preached some of these passages, some of these books that we've worked on in the past, and I'm afraid to go back and listen to them because I'm, <laughs> I've messed them up. Because the more I learn about it, the more I realize I didn't know what I There's more depth. There's more to it. And when we start to think we know stuff and we don't have to study, we don't have to humble ourselves before God, we don't have to humble ourselves before others so that we can find mentors who can guide us and lead us, then we begin to drift. And we begin to put our understanding ahead of God's Word. That's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says we all know, I hope, because I've talked about it a lot, that our job is to trust in the Lord with all our heart, and not in any way to lean on our own understanding, but instead to submit to Him in all of our ways. And when we do that, He'll straighten our path. 
far too often today, we have churches who have decided we need to do cool stuff. We need to use marketing principles. We need to come up with seeker-driven services so we can get more people out. I've been guilty of that temptation myself. We need to not talk about those doctrines because that might divide. We need to not, you know, get too harsh about morality because people won't come.
they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, you have tried to bring them back. You've sought restoration. And the only thing left is to treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Not as a brother or sister, but as one who needs to hear and receive the truth. Truly, I tell you, whatever you find on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. We need to care enough to confront, and as we see here in the same passage, we also need to diligently seek restoration. Teach God's word faithfully, care enough to confront, and diligently seek restoration. If you repent, forgive. The idea is to get this thing right. The idea in Matthew 18 in this confrontation is not to, let's go stick it to them. Let's go catch them messing up. It's just the opposite. It's to bring them back to where they need to be. Restoration is always the goal of church discipline. And it should be in our personal lives as well. When we seek vengeance, we forget our place. We put ourselves in God's place. And we do not give a clear picture of who we Because God's vengeance is perfect in our history. Instead, when we demonstrate the mercy of Christ, when we demonstrate the compassionate heart that seeks diligently to restore that which is lost, we give an accurate reflection of who He is. And we reflect both His holiness and His mercy. When we teach truth, we teach the holiness, and we seek to restore those who are apart from that. Teach God's Word faithfully, care enough to confront, diligently seek restoration. Kind of the flip side of that coin that we need to model passionate mercy. Model passionate mercy. Notice as we saw in, uh, in Matthew 18, there is a restoration that comes along with it. And as Jesus comes right out of that, he goes into this parable about a servant who receives forgiveness but is unwilling to give it to another. If you're there, you can read along with me you start in verse 22. Uh, I started in verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sinned against me? Up to seven times? That's a lot. Most of us don't do that. You know, I'm more like Gomer Pyle. Only once, shame on you. Only twice, shame on me. Right? Gomer Pyle is one of my role models for us. But, uh, that, you know, if you've burned me twice already, it's pretty stretch you out, man. We're done. Peter, he's going the extra mile. How about seven times? That's a number of completion for, for Jewish people. It shows a fullness. And Jesus is like, um, you're not quite there yet. I'll tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Another rendering of 70 times seven. The point is not the number, the point is that it doesn't end. If you're counting, you're already on the Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like the king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. That's a lot of gold. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. That was the way it was handled. It was just. It was right. It was owed. Verse 26. At this, the servant fell on his knees before 
have an argument. He didn't have a way to get out of it. He just fell on his knees. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. No, you won't. Doesn't matter how much patience you got, you're not paying back that amount of debt. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt.
glorify your Father in heaven. I'm going to read that last part again. Because that clause is the, the pinnacle of the whole thing. That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Not you. Not that they can see what a good person you are or how cool real life is. But that they might see God. And in your doings, find an example worth following. Give glory to Him. That they might receive real life in Jesus. We lead by example. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul goes through a whole litany of things. Here's, here's what you saw in us. We did this, not for us, but for others. You saw our example. We worked through suffering. And it didn't matter. This is not about us. It's about the good of everybody else. In following our example, Leading by example is crucial. And in John 13, 16, as I also mentioned earlier, John 13, 16, Jesus says, The servant is not greater than his master. The last point, remember the reality of your role. Remember the reality of your role. He's God, you're not. That seems really simple, perhaps trite, cliche. Sounds like something on a bumper sticker. I would submit to you that it is the central truth that we wrestle with most. We want to be God. It's not that God is hard to understand. Yes, He is. But that's not what causes us to stumble. He is bigger than us. Understatement? We will not fully see understand until we see Him face to face. Then we will know even as we are fully known. The problem we have There is only one sovereign, and you ain't it. God is God, you are not. And when I can wrap my mind around that, then I begin to take on the humility that I am called to. Instead of thinking, hey, look how good I did. Yay, I'm useful. I'm so excited, I forgave that person. Now, don't get me wrong, when you do good things, it's an exciting thing. When I do the job that I'm paid to do, and I do it well, there's a sense of pride that goes along with that, and I get excited. Mike, Mike does a nice job painting a wall, feels good about it. Much better than if you don't, right? That, that's how it works. So when you plant seed and you get a harvest, it feels really good about it. Again, much better than if you don't, right? When things go well, Doreen writes a, a poem, and it just clicks. That is the one. That's what I've been waiting for. I that, that is exactly what I wanted to say, and I couldn't get it. She set out to write a poem. But in doing it, there's a good feeling. But Jesus is saying, look, when you do what you're supposed to do, he's not saying don't have good feelings about doing your work. It is exciting when things go well. We moved into a new building. We have a new VBS. Those are all exciting things. But guys, the job doesn't merit extra praise. God doesn't owe you anything. One thing that I, I should have pointed out earlier that flows through all of these things, teaching God's word faithfully, preparing enough to confront, diligently seeking restoration, uh, modeling passionate mercy, leading by example, and remembering the reality of our role, is what Jesus says in the middle of this. Let's go back if you're not there to 
gives them the command in verse 4. And you, even if they sin against you, not just sin, but sin against you, they hurt you, they betray you, they wound you, and they do it seven times in a day, and they just keep doing it. You must forgive them. The emphasis is not, we kind of get caught up on the top of, well, they didn't repent, they didn't think, sorry. That ain't the point. The point is the forgiveness. The repentance is on them. The command to forgive is on us. And he says, you must forgive. And notice their reaction. I love that the NIV adds an exclamation point to it. It's not there in the Greek, but it fits. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Lord, give me more faith. How many of you have prayed for God to give you more faith? I just need more faith. If I could have more faith, then I could do this. I can't do this on my own. Very valid. Very true. Jesus pretty much just dismissed They're like, Lord, we need more faith. And he says, you don't. It's not about how much faith you've got. We have this particular uh, statement that Jesus makes here in verse 6 is used elsewhere. Sometimes we break the meanings of various uh, passages. But here in verse 6, when he says this faith as small as mustard seed, this isn't saying you can do wonderful magical things. That's not the point. The point is, if you've got any faith at all, even a tiny, little, puny, weak, pathetic morsel of faith, then amazing, unbelievable things can happen. Because it's God doing it anyway, not you. It's not the power of your faith. There are a lot of books written about the power of your faith. Your, your creative ability to be able to speak into existence some new reality. False teaching. Your faith will make you well. False teaching. Jesus does say that. But we have to lift it out of context to get that principle. If faith isn't what makes us well, it's who we put our faith in. When Jesus heals, he heals for a purpose. And it's not so that we can all just have a happy, good life on this little temporal orb to move us toward a greater eternal glory. We get sideways when we get so focused on faith, this quantity of faith, this mystical quality of faith. We think God can just grant us this gift, and if God would just drop a download into me, I'm going to pray, and when I get up off of my knees, I'm going to feel this warm glow, and it's going to wash over me. Now listen, I don't want to dismiss the benefit and beauty of having emotion in worship and prayer. But that's not where the strength comes from. The nutrition isn't in the seasoning, it's in the meat. The meat is him. Eat of faith of faith is not some mystical quality, but an act of obedience. That's what faith is. You've heard me say lots of times in here that faith is aligning our thinking with God's thinking. To align our thinking with reality is what faith is all about. But what we see here, the clear picture of that, is that Jesus is saying, look, this isn't about having more faith. It's about choosing to do what you're commanded to do. Instead of asking for more faith to forgive, forgive. Stop waiting for God to drop some magical download on you. That's not how it works. 
God says do it, therefore you do it, that's your faith. That's the point of everything in the book of James. Stop talking about it, start being about it, stop looking for faith, trying to increase it, and start walking. Just do it. We want some magical rocket shoes, and Jesus is giving us Nike therapy. Just do it. He replied, your, your seed size isn't the point. Verse 7. Suppose one of you has a servant following a living after the sheep. They say the servant who comes in to the field, come along now and sit down to eat. Won't he rather say, prepare my supper? Get yourself ready. Another rendering says, put on your appropriate serving clothes. Wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink, because that's the role. That's how it's done. We thank the servant because he did what he was told to do. So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. He is still talking about forgiveness. It's the same passage. He's just talking about obeying the command. Don't cause anybody to stumble. Watch out for one another. Rebuke them when they get wrong, not because they deserve punishment, but because you love them enough to get them back on the right path. And then look to restore them. Lord, we can't handle it. We need more faith. I don't care how much faith you've got. Do it anyway. That's not really the Jesus we teach a lot, is it? The do it anyway, Jesus? Jesus, why should I do this? Because I said so. That's the God of the Bible. And we run from that because we want something that's more palatable, something that's a little softer, the soft cell Jesus. Well, I'd really like it if you forgive one another. That's not Jesus. It comes with a sort of truth. And the sort of truth divides. Jesus makes no bones about it. I didn't come to make it easy or to bring peacefulness. It's a divide with the sort of truth. that little seed is that you've got. And maybe you've got more faith than somebody else. Amount isn't the point. It's not that kind of a thing. It's a matter of, I see what God says, I choose to believe what God says, therefore I will act on what God says. That's faith. The rest is just looking. I can feel a lot of things. Faith comes in our action. Those who belong to Christ must both His holiness and His mercy through our relationship. I'm over time, but I just want to finish with one admonition. If you don't take these things seriously, if I don't take these things seriously, then I am on the opposite side of God. I cannot claim to follow Christ and not take seriously what He takes seriously.